Hello and welcome to the next in the podcast series that we at Inlorm are producing with the hope of adding knowledge and experience to some of the conversations that are taking place with regard to finding solutions for patients with ultra-rare diseases. In previous didactic podcasts, I've taken us from the basic concept of what a drug is, that it's a chemical, and what makes it different from other chemicals, how chemical reactions take place, why the effects of drugs are concentration or dose dependent, then introduced how pharmacologists think about drugs, and then finally moved on to the various platforms that are available for drug therapy today and how they relate to the management of patients with ultra-rare diseases. And that brings me to a question that I've been asked very frequently. And the question I've asked is, well, why is it that the guidance for treatment of ultra-rare patients issued by the FDA is focused solely on ASO technology? Well, I certainly can't speak for the FDA, wouldn't pretend to. But to my mind, there are many very good reasons. So let's work our way through some of those other platforms and see why they're not so useful today. But one possibility that might work is to repurpose a small molecule drug that is currently used for some other therapeutic purpose that we might be able to use to treat a patient with an ultra-rare disease. And you'll recall from earlier chats that really this just is a statement that is very consistent with the behavior of small molecules. They're not specific. And so you might be able to get an effect of a small molecule drug that would be beneficial in a patient with an ultra-rare disease. And in fact, repurposing small molecule drugs for new indications has worked in the past. It's been used a number of times. However, that process in which you screen giant libraries of small molecules is very time-consuming and costly and very, very inefficient. And given how desperately ill and progressive most ultra-rare patients are, most can little afford the years of screening and the whatnot needed to find a small molecule chemical that might work. Nevertheless, if there is a drug that exists today that seems to have a benefit in an ultra-rare patient, then by all means, it should be used. And so if there is that drug, by all means, you should consider using it or having it administered to you. I do have to say, though, that unfortunately, most of the time, repurposing small molecule drugs not only is extremely inefficient and costly and time-consuming, as a general rule, the beneficial effects tend to be quite modest. And so even if there is a repurposable small molecule drug, I think it behooves the field to continue to look for other solutions. Now, another much more attractive option is to design a gene to replace the gene that may be defective in the patient who has an ultra-rare disease. And as I said, we have many ultra-rare patients who have mutations that produce then null mutations or mutations that don't allow them to make any of the protein. And in those patients, right now, the only solution that I see is gene therapy, but it's tough to pull off in the ultra-rare patient. And early on, as I was putting together and building it, I spoke with many of the gene therapy companies. And in those conversations, I believe most of the leaders of the gene therapy companies I talked to agree that gene therapy is not quite ready to be used in the treatment of ultra-rare patients. But we also know that the NIH and a number of academic centers are actively working on gene therapy for ultra-rare diseases. And I hope that some of those programs work. Certainly at NLORM, we're going to be monitoring every bit of progress in gene therapy, and so should you. And for sure, when 
Um, the leaders of the efforts in gene therapy feel the technology is ready to apply to patients with ultra rare disease. That's going to be a great day. And certainly at NLORM, we stand ready to work cooperatively with those efforts to assure that gene therapy moves along. And once it is ready to be used in a particular setting, that the patient that may need it gets it. Our goal is to see these patients get the drug they need. So that brings me to ASO technology. What makes ASO technology so special today? Well, first, particularly as practice at IONIS, the discovery of an optimal ASO to treat a patient or a particular patient is extremely rapid and very inexpensive compared to other approaches. And that's the case even though we may screen a thousand or more different ASOs to find the best ASO for that particular patient. It really is just very remarkably fast and inexpensive at IOMAS. Second, the technology is relatively broadly applicable. We can use it for many, many different purposes. And our major limitation is we can't treat patients who need a gene to be replaced because they have what's called a null mutation. ASOs can be administered for local and systemic effects by essentially all routes of administration. So that's good. Third, after systemic administration, ASOs distribute relatively broadly. So we can use ASOs to treat diseases that manifest in different organs fairly easily. And we know what the process of absorption, distribution, and elimination of ASOs is. And we also then understand the concentrations that we need to achieve in each particular organ to get a therapeutic effect and what concentrations we get at the doses that we're willing to use. And as I mentioned, ASOs within a particular chemical class behave all very similarly. So we can use experience with previous 10 ASOs that we've made in a particular chemical class to guide what we do. And that's really important because we want to know what dose to use what route of administration to use, and how frequently we have to dose a patient. And that's very difficult to do in a single patient unless you have some basis to make those predictions, and we do. And at IONIS, we have put together databases that integrate all the safety observations that we have for all the four major chemical classes that we are working on in non-human primates and the human studies we've done. And that's tremendously valuable because it allows us to predict what side effects to watch for. The results of those analyses are published and available. You can look them up. And they're also available to regulatory agencies. And then finally, because we're focused on just organs where ASOs distribute very nicely at low doses, the ASOs we use today are quite potent and most last for quite a long time. And so the cost of making an ASO is relatively small, and it's a small fraction of the cost of therapy uh, with ASOs. So a lot of attributes that make it attractive. On the other hand, Anacense technology has important limitations. We can't replace a gene. And we do have new mechanisms that we can use to increase the production of a specific protein. But for some of those new mechanisms, we have very limited experience. And so those experiments in uh, N1 patients will be uh, very interesting experiments for us to run. And they will be experiments. And then, of course, we can use ASOs, as we have traditionally done for many years, to cause loss of the target RNA and loss of a, a disease-causing protein. And that, of course, we know very well. To assure that our patients are exposed only to prudent of risk because we're generating very little preclinical data before we go to man, we're focused on only organs and routes of administration that we know a lot about 
we know the ASOs are extremely potent and have a high therapeutic index then. And that's the liver and the kidney via subcutaneous injection, the eye by intravitreal injection, directly injecting it in the eye, the CNS by injecting directly in the spinal fluid, it's called intrathecal injections, and then along via aerosol administration. So at NLORM, we can't treat every patient. We have real limitations and we have to reject, you know, two-thirds of the applications we get. I wish we could treat those people. But what matters to me today is the patients we can treat and the effort that's being made to expand and broaden the types of patients who have ultra-rare diseases can begin to benefit from ASO technology and the other drug discovery platforms. And that's a traditional dictum of therapeutics. Treat the patients you can today with the medicines that you have that will work while investing long-term in new approaches that will allow you to do better for the patients you treat today and for the patients you can't treat. So that brings us to the end of our discussion of drugs and drug discovery technologies. And I hope helps you understand why we are focused on ASO treatment at NLORM and also clearly enunciates for you some of the limitations that we have. I want to briefly describe the history of the drug discovery and development industry. I think that's relevant because there are so many diverse types of people involved today in trying to find solutions for N of 1 patients and many ideas that have some potential interest and value being floated by folks who don't know much about the industry or the history of the industry. And so I think there's some merit in at least being informed by the history of the industry and what's been tried, what's failed, what's succeeded. I think I mentioned in an earlier podcast that the intellectual framework for the drug discovery and development industry was was late 1900 when the concept of the receptor was proposed. And that conceptual framework emergence uh, also coincided with two broadly different groups of companies becoming interested in uh, attempting to use chemicals to make drugs that could provide benefit to patients with various diseases. And one of the main source of companies that moved into this area were the very large chemical manufacturing companies in Germany and and Switzerland at that time. And there were names that you will know, such as Merck AG, Roche, the Behringers, Bayer, and so on. And of course, they were creating new chemicals and looking for potential utility of those chemicals as a means of increasing the margins on the sale of those chemicals as well as the sale. The second group of companies were housed largely in the U.S. and to some extent in the U.K., and they were patent medicine houses. Patent medicine outfits provided remedies, quote, for various illnesses that one could buy over-the-counter in a pharmacy or a grocery store or whatnot. Now, the truth of the matter is most of those patent medicines either owed their activity to a high content of alcohol or to opiates that were present. But once again, these companies were looking for a way to differentiate their products from others and increase the margins on their products. And as again, they migrated toward more substantial R&D investments to discover and develop a drug. And of course, there are many names that you know that represent those sorts of companies. For example, Eli Lilly, the first two companies I worked for that were large, Crystal Myers and Klein Beckman, and many others come from that lineage. Those lineages actually have an effect on the behaviors of those companies throughout the evolution of the pharmaceutical industry. And so they're worth knowing that they came from those two places. And 
at that time in 1900 and through, uh, uh, you know, the first 20, 30 years of the industry, barriers to entry were very limited. And so many companies decided to pursue this commercial opportunity. And a very large extent, those companies were derived from either consumer goods or chemical houses. So they were actually, according to the conglomerate model, they had multiple profit centers, multiple businesses, and just one of them, and typically a relatively small part of the business, was the drug discovery and development industry. And among the earliest pioneers to believe that investment in R&D to find new products was essential was actually Eli Lilly. And Eli Lilly proposed the almost unbelievable idea at that time of investing 10% of the profits that they made in R&D activities. 10% would not get the job done today, let me tell you. So that's where the industry came from. It was highly decentralized. And it was a set of conglomerates. The first company I worked for, Bristol-Myers, which is now BMS or Bristol-Myers Squibb, actually had a whole series of divisions that were, in many cases, more profitable and larger and more powerful in the corporation than the drug discovery and development business. In fact, Bristol-Myers was run by people who inherited Clairol you know, a hair product effort. And similarly, in Europe with the chemical houses. And so what are the lessons that are learned from that is first that conglomerates have been tried multiple times. And to a very large extent, they've been abandoned over the years because the characteristics of the drug discovery and development business, the characteristics of the organization, the timelines, the risks, the costs are so radically different from other types of products that mixing them hasn't worked. There are still a few companies that do this. Certainly Novartis would be a good example. J&J is another outstanding example. To a large extent, the multiple profit center solutions, conglomerate type solutions have been abandoned in favor of focusing on the peculiar, unique business that is the drug discovery and development business. And the second big lesson that comes is that the industry for many years was highly decentralized with very little in the way of barriers to prevent other companies coming in. And it was really quite pioneering to propose that one would invest some fraction of profits on a consistent basis in long-term research and development. So all that changed. And and it's an appropriate question to ask, how (laughs) and why? Well, certainly one of the major factors that changed the industry was regulation. In the early days, these companies were unregulated altogether. In the early 1900s, Upton Sinclair exposed in a book called The Jungle, the meatpacking industry and beginnings of the FDA were created. And the FDA was entirely focused initially and primarily focused for quite a while on the food industry and improving the safety of food that we eat. And all that changed, and this is going to be a frequent theme, it changed because of a disaster. And in the 1930s, late 1930s, sulfonilamide, which was a sulfur anti-infective drug, and it was really about the only anti-infective agent that was available, was put into an elixir with a toxic substance in it. And quite a number of patients died. And that led then to a new act, which then added focus on safety of drugs. And for almost the next 30 years, companies could market a product so long as they demonstrated in some relatively minor ways that the product appeared to be safe. There was no requirement 
that benefit was in any way studied or proven. And then 1962, and that is a seminal date in the industry. Before 1962 and after 1962 are like a night and day different. So what happened in 1962? Well, the thalidomide disaster happened. Now, thalidomide was a minor tranquilizer, and there were other products that were really quite similar to it that were already on the market in the United States. And so the person at the FDA just said no to allowing thalidomide to be marketed in the U.S. for no particular reason other than similar agents were already available. Unfortunately, in Europe and other parts of the world, over time, it became clear that thalidomide was teratogenic, meaning produced deformed babies, babies that had sufficient problems that you could see it at birth. And many of these babies were born without arms or legs or terrible deformations. That made a fundamental difference in the history of the industry. And with that came FDA regulations that now focused both on safety and on proving efficacy. And over time, the requirements for proving efficacy have steadily increased. And the requirements for proving safety have steadily increased as well. And the impact of that, of course, has been that the cost of discovering and developing a new medicine and the risks of doing that have escalated enormously. In addition, it became much better appreciated that even when a new medicine was commercially available, there were very significant risks to the company. And included in those risks is that it might do harm, that it could be sued for, and a variety of other kinds of risks. And as a consequence of that, of course, the industry compressed and consolidated, and many, many companies exited face. And so any proposed solution must recognize that this industry is unique. It has unique challenges, unique risks, unique people, unique workforce. And those risks are are impressive and they need to be paid attention to. I would mention one other event that happened in the regulatory process that I think is quite important and sometimes forgotten. And that is the tremendous impact of the AIDS activists on regulation and on the behavior of the FDA. Prior to AIDS, while there were token patient voices on advisory committees and so on, there was very little attention paid to the patient. The AIDS activists changed all that. And that has, I think, made a very significant difference in the behavior of the FDA, even within the context of the regulations that exist. And subsequently, there have been a number of positive reforms that were not tied to catastrophe. And among them are reforms that support defining a stringent standard for approval of medicines for rare diseases. One thing to remember is that each division at the FDA behaves as a relatively independent division. And so the interpretation of the guidances and the law itself vary a bit depending on the nature of the division. And so this industry today is the single most regulated industry that uh, the world has known. And it takes special skills, special people, special experiences in a special commitment to have a company in this space. Now, as a product of all the divestitures and consolidations, more and more power was concentrated in fewer and fewer people. And that progressed till about in the mid-70s. And what happened next then was the notion about technology. But technology came to be because it was thought that 
being able to clone a gene would allow one to make a product. For example, TPA was a product that people knew we would like, but it was difficult to make. And so with cloning it, one could make it. And I must say, I was around at that time. The concepts were extraordinarily naive, and the people involved were very naive with regard to drug discovery development. But begin it did. Now, you could ask why. In my view, the main reason that biotechnology then developed was great dissatisfaction of investors with the centralized leadership of R&D in the pharmaceutical industry. I think that was justified. And so in a sense, it was very much a vote of no confidence. And to my mind, probably the single most important innovation in biotechnology was the financial innovation. At that time, I was recruited to lead a number of different biotech companies. And I declined because I could not imagine how any single company could raise the money necessary to fund you know, a broad portfolio of R&D activities. And so biotechnology is an effort to decentralize R&D management that was led by Wall Street. And it reflected just great dissatisfaction with, with, with the productivity of R&D. And a major revolution that took place, and it's continuing as we speak today, is the collection of capital in the hands of individuals who understand the nature of the business and the risk and are willing to invest in a portfolio of different investments. And the basic idea was if we decentralize R&D and we have a portfolio of R&D investments, uh, we'll make money more than if we put it in the hands of a senior person running an R&D organization in one of the larger companies. And so it generated incredible amounts of decentralization. It also resulted in a dramatic increase in productivity and creativity. And so that concept of a decentralized approach to R&D with a larger portfolio being managed by investors actually did work. And it changed the larger pharmaceutical companies, I think, indelibly. By and large, in the mid-1970s, early 80s, most major companies invested only in internal research. All of that now has changed dramatically, and it's seen as a part of just running your business, that you externalize a great deal of innovation and that you identify the small companies that are innovating and incorporate them into your R&D portfolio. And so the central solution to overconsolidation has actually been by technology. And it continues to be a highly effective way of decentralizing and broadening the opportunities as new companies are formed, when other companies fail, and when acquisitions take place. So all of that, I think, reflects a series of steps that have been taken. And one of the other big lessons about technology was that inexperienced people and inexperienced companies can do real harm. And so today's biotechnology companies, today's biotechnology leaders, and today's biotechnology investors are far more sophisticated and have a much better understanding of the risks associated. Okay, so that's a, a very brief history of the industry that I've lived in my entire career from at least one person's perspective. And I think there are really important lessons that you may want to consider. First, the discovery of new medicines, the development and commercialization of new medicines is unique. It's a unique business with unique risks, challenges, and people. And by and large, most organizations have stepped away from a conglomerate approach. That's an important thing to think of. Second, 
that the industry today is the most decentralized it's ever been since the major regulatory changes took place in 1962. And that decentralization of R&D has proven to be a very productive solution. And, and anyone interested in ultra-rare disease should continue to support that. A third point that I haven't really covered, but I will here, is that a number of biotech companies were formed to repurpose small molecule drugs. And repurposing small molecule drugs is always an option as a new disease emerges because small molecule drugs are not very specific. So it's been tried many times. And by and large, it's a low yield exercise. Every now and then, there's a drug that can be repurposed and actually bring some value, but it's highly costly highly time-consuming, and rarely provides a true breakthrough in treatment, something to be considered in terms of the way healthcare dollars and investments are going to be used to meet the needs of ultra-rare patients. And so the industry today, in terms of what matters to the ultra-rare disease patient, which is innovation, is highly decentralized, continues to be decentralized. There's ever more capital available for the formation and establishment of nascent biotechnology companies, but all of those companies must make a profit. And even with the increase in productivity that's been seen, the prices of medicines have steadily increased because the failures still vastly outnumber the successes. And the smaller the patient population, the higher the price. And all of those factors then have to be considered as we think about holistic solutions to meet the needs of the ultra-rare patient, including the fact that there's insufficient investment today in the healthcare system to support quality care for all patients, even with the common diseases that we have, uh, to say nothing now of the challenge of the ultra-rare patient. So food for thought, and we will move on from here and take advantage of those lessons, certainly I take advantage of them every day as we progress in and learn. And Lorem is a nonprofit committed to discovering and providing personalized experimental treatments for free for life to patients with genetic diseases that affect 1 to 30 patients worldwide, referred to by Enlorem as nano rare. Many of these patients progress and die without ever achieving a diagnosis. This is where Enlorem comes in. They do the impossible by providing hope and for those that they can help, free lifetime treatment. For more information about Enlorem or today's episode, visit enlorem.org. Any questions can be sent into podcast at enlorem.org. Search Enlorem on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, LinkedIn, and Facebook to connect with us. Please rate and review the podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen. This truly helps us climb the charts and allows others to find the show. This podcast is hosted by Dr. Stan Crook. Our videographer is John Magnuson of Mighty One Productions. Our producers are John Magnuson and Kira Deneen of DNA Today. Thank you for listening. <laughs>